Hello, and welcome to the show. This is the J&J Podcast from J&J Editorial. I'm Michael Casp, the Director of Business Development here at J&J, and this is a podcast special that we're recording just ahead of Peer Review Week 2020. Today, I'm interviewing longtime J&Jer Emily Babcock, J&J's System Support Coordinator. I've worked with Emily for many years, and she just wrote an article for the Aries Systems blog about reviewer databases and how to maintain and improve them. The theme for this year's peer review week is trust in peer review, and we all know that reviewers and the databases that we use to manage them are a crucial component in maintaining that trust. So I caught up with Emily to talk about her article, about peer review in general, and about J&J's partnership with Aries Systems. So Emily, happy peer review week. Thank you, and a very merry peer review week to you as well, Michael. Oh, thank you so much. Uh, it's exciting to be here with you. Um, so the theme of this year's peer review week is trust. So tell the listeners why they should trust you, or to ask this another way, what are uh, some of the previous projects you've worked on, and and what was your role? Uh, oh man, uh, yeah, I have done a lot of things. I've been with J and J for nine years and some change now. Um, so, uh, picture it: Apex, North Carolina, twenty eleven. A young, vibrant, recent graduate is about to get kicked out of her internship and needs to find a real job. So, so she applies to J and J. Yeah, so I started off at an entry level position, like pretty much everybody else at J and J. I was an editorial assistant with the POS team, uh, just doing like new submission check-ins uh, and this and that. And through just like a combination of staff changes and you know generally being amazing, uh, I was able to move into managing the department, much like you, because we kind of started at the same time. We did, yeah. We I think I started what a few weeks after you. It wasn't that long. Yeah, we were so young then. Oh, just babes. <laughs> uh, but yeah, so I I, moved, I started managing the plus department. Uh, and then just over the years, I've managed a handful of other departments at J&J, uh, our Walters Clore department, our Endocrine Society team, also serving as a managing editor on a couple of specific journals, uh, one of which I still manage today, Advances in Neonatal Care. Very cool. So it's safe to say you've managed peer review for a few different journals in your time, worked with a few different societies and publishers. Um, mm -hmm. So you have a, a pretty broad experience base. I've seen um, it all. Well, not, not. <laughs> I've seen a fair amount. You've seen a lot, and I assume that helps you in your new-ish role as the system support coordinator here at J&J. &J. So I definitely want to hear a little bit more in your own words about what that role is, because I think it's probably the most like complicated role we have here at J&J. &J. So I definitely would like to hear you know, kind of what your approach is. Yeah, so uh, something that I think that we can really deliver uh, in our division is being that bridge between the editorial and support work world. Support work, people think of just pure software configurations, like it's almost an IT kind of gig, which is not untrue. Uh, but because we have so much editorial experience, also we can really speak to how the software configuration applies to day-to-day -day journal practical management. Um, so in my role as system support coordinator, I oversee our various support projects that we do with journal management system config, whether that be from scratch site builds, daily inbox tickets, or consulting style projects. 
we've worked with a bunch of different systems. I'm mainly an editorial manager kind of gal, but we also um, have a lot of Scholar One work and we dabble in EJP and much, much more. Very nice. So can you, I guess, give me like an example of a systems project that you, you've worked on just so people can kind of get a better feel of, of like what exactly you're bringing to the table? Yeah, so it, it really can go from big or, or, or small. It can be as small as can you please add this article type to a system or can you please uh, change a submission question uh, and, and do XYZ or it could be this publisher is getting a site or a brand new journal launched and can you build the system from scratch, work with them to interview the editors on what they want out of the system, how the structure is going to go, how peer review is going to be managed, and then make the system configurations work with that workflow. Gotcha. So, so the, the way I know we talk about it a lot is we're sort of translating the editorial people's priorities and goals and everything into the system. And, and, and sort of, the, I, I feel like that's the big value add from your group is because you've done a lot of peer review management mm -hmm. and you also are experts at the system. And that's not an easy place to live, but that's where you live. Well, yeah, because I think technology or the technology piece of publishing can be what's really scary to a lot of people. And I think it can sometimes just either get shoved off to the side or people feel like they're not, quote, technical enough to really be able to talk about this and that. Because when you get really in-depth with the config, it can get a little in the weeds and it can, um, just making one change can have vast ramifications with other things in the system. Uh, so it, it's really useful, I think, that we're able to consult with journals on helping build their journal strategy from a systems perspective. It's really crucial. Um, and, and just more putting out that knowledge out there. Uh, philosophically, I've always said that systems knowledge is what makes a good managing editor into a great managing editor. So I'm just trying to, you know, in my role as systems support coordinator, get everyone excited about that and have them all be as big a nerd about systems support as I am. Uh, okay, so let's talk a little bit about this article that you uh, just wrote for the Aries Systems blog. Um, so it's all about peer review databases, peer reviewer databases, and how to manage them, uh, specifically using Editorial Manager. But I think a lot of the points you make are pretty generalizable to other systems. Uh, you just kind of go in depth a little bit on how to do it in EM, but, but obviously these are lessons you can take anywhere. Um, but one of the first things your article made me think about was just building a reviewer database or a reviewer pool from the get-go. And I, I think I think it's hard, and it, it often you know comes back to trust. You know, editors they want to send manuscripts to reviewers that they know have the right background and they know will write a good review. So adding new reviewers to the database can kind of feel like an uphill battle. So. I'm wondering what are some of the tactics you've used or, or seen employed to build up a reviewer database or, or a reviewer pool? I would say that the first thing that comes to mind is if you're working with a society with that journal, do they have a database of their membership? Uh, and utilizing that member can be a really great way to just get your baseline amount of reviewers because you know, obviously, they are interested in the society. Uh, and thus they will probably be interested in the journal. They might be authors for the journal and so they can also be reviewers. I would say also considering your editorial board, if you're building a journal from scratch uh, or, and building a reviewer database from scratch, you're also probably building up your editorial board. So who are their colleagues? Who do they know? Are they associated with other networks? Do they have other lists of names that they have access to that could be shared with the journal? 
Uh, and again, for all those reasons with the society membership, they can probably encourage those people more to review for your journal. Beyond that, I would say, I mean, like indexes, that's a pretty standard one is looking in PubMed, Scopus, Web of Science for people who have published in the discipline, uh, or even just putting out a call for reviewers, especially if you want to target younger professionals uh, who are just entering kind of the world of reviewing, they're not quite sure how everything works yet. I mean, the downside there is that they're a little less experienced, but the upside is that they are usually pretty eager to complete assignments and you can work on developing their skills right at the onset of their career and they can really turn into your star reviewers depending on the kind of reviewer engagement programs that your journal has. Absolutely. And and I know one thing I've done in journals I've managed in the past is uh, come up with a process for bringing those new reviewers into the fold because you're right, they, they don't know what's going on. Like we would get emails from these people, you know, early career professionals who are like, hey, I'd like to review. I don't know how to start doing that. So you kind of <laughs> need to, to you know do a little handholding, bring them along. Uh, what we would do was uh, be to tell them, you know, find a veteran reviewer, usually, you know, some, a mentor, someone at your uh, institution who can kind of walk you through the steps, help you out with your first few reviews. And also whenever we would, because we, we would classify these people as like, this is a new reviewer. So whenever we were, you know, adding reviewers to a paper, uh, we would make sure to, you know, pair them with a seasoned reviewer who we knew we'd, you know, kind of get a good baseline uh, to compare to with, with the new reviewer. So, um, have, have you uh, been a part of sort of developing anything like that in, in your journals? Sort of. I would say, I mean, peer review mentorship programs are a really big topic right now. Uh, and I, again, I think a daunting one because building up that structure can be really tricky depending on how your review times work out, how your board structure is. Do you have volunteers to serve as the, the mentors to these mentees and things like that? But it doesn't even need to be that robust. Usually when we have new reviewers come in uh, who just either approach us out of the blue or maybe my editors will approach people at a conference and then bring them to me and say, hey, Emily, this person wants to review for our journal. Can you get them set up? Uh, I will direct them to our reviewer guidelines, which is becoming a more popular thing for journals to have is just reviewer guidelines, addition to author guidelines. I will give them, I'll tag them in the system with a flag that says new and eager reviewer so that my editors can search for those people specifically and tap them. We also have an example review on our website of what we think a really good review is. And one of our editors went through and marked it up with, this is why this review is so good. This is how it gets to the heart of the paper. There's examples like that or just materials that you can make for your reviewers that I think are really useful if you aren't really at the point where you can do a mentorship program, mm -hmm. as long as you do something. Yeah, no, I, I love that. And, and I definitely, <laughs> you made me think about this. Uh, article we posted on our social media feeds not too long ago that was like qualitative interviews with editors and chiefs they were talking about review and, and there were several e editors who were like I love young reviewers they're so eager they write amazing detailed in-depth you know thorough reviews compared to some more veteran people who I guess don't take it quite as seriously as maybe they used to so I always think that's interesting and also, I, I definitely wanted to mention, it wasn't specifically a reviewer uh, mentorship, but it kind of ended up being that. So, so with this journal I used to work on, we um, it was a writing workshop. So it was um, having people who were working on a paper for the journal, presumably. So they would submit them. 
their sort of earlier drafts to the editor and also to each other. So it was all sort of like younger authors sort of um, looking at each other's papers, giving essentially reviewer comments to each other. And also it was sort of like a guided discussion uh, guided by the editor in chief. So, so they were getting like basically a free round of review before they even submitted, which was really cool. And also just like started working on those reviewer skills in a place where they could learn, sort of bounce ideas off each other. Um, of course, this was back when we could do things in person. It'd probably be more difficult to do this on Zoom. But like you said, you could probably, um, like your editors do, write up you know, uh, uh, your notes on alongside a review, kind of say, this is the good things about this review, this is good, not so good things, or, or about the paper or, or what have you. But I thought that that, that workshop ended up having like so many great benefits for the journal, for the authors engaging, you know, society members and all that. So I just wanted to make sure I mentioned that. So getting back to your article, uh, one of the topics you covered uh, is creating custom reviewer questions uh, in the review form. So I'm curious how much impact you think having a review form makes versus say having just like an open text box where people could just enter their comments. I mean, potentially a lot of impact. Um, I mean, it obviously depends on the kind of questions that you ask uh, and how much the information the reviewer is willing to give. I mean, like, as you mentioned, you might have some reviewers that just don't have time to put in the kind of comments you want or, or you know, have other competing responsibilities and you're just gonna get your, yep, nope, paper was good kind of answers. Uh, you're never gonna really be able to get rid of that in any complex system ever. Uh, but that's not really the goal here. The goal is to, to go after the majority and stack the deck so that nine times out of 10, you get those quality results. Uh, and I think if you have a reviewer that maybe didn't read your reviewer guidelines, I know that sounds crazy. Reviewers don't read guidelines. Authors <laughs> not reading guidelines. Impossible. No way. Never happens. Um, but if you have somebody who didn't read those or maybe just didn't have the chance or the time, you know, because reviewers are super busy, by providing that structure embedded in the form, you're kind of forcing them to think critically about their responses, maybe nudge some of those average middle of the road reviewers into uh, honing in on what really does and doesn't make a paper great. And again, pie in the sky, you can kind of hope that with practice and by using these kinds of forms more regularly, you can encourage your, your new reviewers, your average reviewers into being a really star player eventually. So do you have uh, like an example or two of the kinds of questions that you think uh, end up working well? I mentioned the, like a few examples in the article about, you know, is the methodology sound? Do you think this needs statistical review and why? Is the language good? Do you think that they need to seek out professional grammar editing? Things like that. Things that the editors really want to hear, but reviewers don't always comment about. And that's really the heart of doing the kinds of questions is what do your editors want out of the review uh, so that they can quickly make decisions and, and give good decisions and good feedback to the authors and make sure that their journal is pushing out quality material. Reviewers aren't mind readers, you know, like, and they don't know what your editors do and don't want. So unless you give them those sort of structured questions, you're really just rolling the dice. Another functionality you mentioned in your article is editorial managers reviewer rating system. Um, so when I was managing a journal on EM or it might've been EES, so we had trouble getting editors to consistently rate reviewers, uh, but it looks like you can make rating reviewers mandatory for editors. So how have you seen uptake on this configuration? And, and do you think rating reviewers makes a big difference to the process? 
So, I mean, as far as I remember, I think you could always make it mandatory. Uh, I could be remembering that incorrectly, though, because uh, mandatory review rating has been an option for a couple of versions now. I don't know that I've seen quite an uptick in it and more that I just personally always try to enforce it if it's not already in place with the journal. Making the, the review ratings doesn't always work for every journal if you have like a really complicated editor structure because it will force every editor to rate that, that reviewer. And so it can be nice to have the option to turn it off, but if you don't employ it, then you need some other method to keep track of your reviewer performance or it's gonna get a little unruly. Right. Yeah. And, and you definitely don't want things to get too unruly. Um, you also mentioned a bit about qualitative questions. So, so you know, I've, I've definitely seen, you know, the one to a hundred scale of like, how good was this review? But but you, you mentioned some qualitative questions that you can ask editors as well. And how have you seen journals put into place? And I guess my, my question off the top of my head is like, how do you analyze this? Like, wh wh what do you do to sort of assess things once you do have responses? I mean, and that, again, that really depends on, on the amount of work that you want to put into doing that assessment. You know, how often do the editors want to touch base on the state of the reviewers? Uh, how can you easily report on questions and, you know, make metrics and trends and charts and graphs about reviewers having certain kinds of problems? Um, but it can be as simple as sending, giving reviewers extra incentive for feedback. Uh, an example would be, one of my journals, uh, we have a question for the editors that just says, is there a reviewer on this article you think did a particularly good job? And they can say, you know, reviewer one, reviewer two, all of them. And what I'll do is when the paper gets accepted, I'll send them an ad hoc email with just an extra special thank you from the editor saying, the review is complete, the paper is accepted. Uh, the editors just wanted to give you this extra thanks saying that you did a really great job. Um, we love you, please review for us again, et cetera. Um, and it seems to go over well. I get responses from those emails actually being like, oh, wow, thanks. Uh, so I think it touches reviewers. And I'm sure there's plenty of other applications for that kind of workflow. In general, I just, I just think reviewers or editors want a way to provide reviewers with backwards, downstream, post-game communication about what went well and what didn't go well so that they can try and, again, like curate that that reviewership. I think that's great because I know that's... that's uh a complaint or a comment I've heard from reviewers is, yeah, they, they write a review, it goes off into the ether, and that's it. Like, they don't really get a ton of feedback from from, um, from some journals, and, 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 and I'm, I'm glad to hear that you're, you're, you're making the effort to do that, because I think that's only going to improve the quality mm -hmm. of review uh, later on, because I, I think most, if not all of them, want to do a good job, but they may just not be getting the, the kind of feedback that can necessarily give them the tools to do so. Exactly. Yeah. There's another feature that I didn't touch on in my article, um, mostly because I personally haven't worked with it a ton, uh, but I think it could have some interesting applications for this kind of downstream communication. Uh, it's the reviewer discussion forum in editorial manager. And essentially after reviewers turn in their comments, you can open a discussion forum with them and the editor can talk to reviewers about, I mean, it's intended, I believe, to just talk about the article about, or like, hey, <clears throat> you said this part was good and this other reviewer said this part was bad. Let's come to a, a consensus here. But I think there probably is application there to talk about the actual reviewer performance in some ways. 
Yeah, no, I, I think that'd be really interesting. I, I mean, I don't know if anybody has the time to do this. I mean, it's <laughs> awesome. If we lived in a world of infinite time, I can see a lot of people getting super into that. But I, I don't know if they do. But but uh, like you said, I, I think that is a really interesting um, way that people could contact each other and, and, and give each other feedback. From the time factor, I mean, that plays into literally everything we're talking <laughs> about here uh, and how much effort you want to put into crafting that reviewer database. But it's regardless of what method you choose, that doing something is, is important, be it just doing the, the structured review form or giving an example review, just start small and over the years you can grow. Yeah, absolutely. So I want to talk next about reviewer classifications. So speaking about like we live in a world of limited time, I feel like reviewer classifications are a, a really good way to add some efficiency to your process. You know, it allows editors or editorial staff to quickly sift through reviewers, find the ones with the right areas of expertise for a given manuscript. Uh, but putting together a, a good classification scheme, you know, it's not easy. Uh, so how have you seen journals implement classifications and, and areas of expertise and, and what challenges do they, they usually run into? I would say the, the main things you need to consider with that are your specificity, your scope, and your numbering. Specificity, some journals go way too broad, some go way too specific. Uh, you should probably limit yourself to having three levels of hierarchy with your classification scheme. You, know, you have your main topic, your subtopic, and then maybe a few sub-subtopics of a couple of the, of the second tier subtopics to keep using the word subtopics. <laughs> Please, yes. A, couple, a few more times if you would, wouldn't mind. Uh, for scope, the average classification system is about the subject matter and the science, topics that papers might be about and readers can comment on, obviously. But I have seen some journals try and maybe mine some demographics data with classification systems, which I think is not a super great idea uh, because the classifications for users and papers are all from one pool. So if you are trying to do things like um, age, sex, gender, uh, degree, you could end up with a, an article labeled female or MD because you have those all in the same classifications pool. Think about how that gets used uh, and make sure that you kind of keep the scope tailored to how, how are you going to be able to find reviewers uh, and make those matches the most efficiently. Right. So keep it useful um, and, and make sure you're thinking through. And, and also, I think, I mean, I didn't know that the, the sort of paper classifications, the people classifications were, you know, definitely pulling from the exact same pool. Mm -hmm. uh, I never thought about that, but uh, that's good to know. Uh, and the last thing is numbering, which I discussed a little bit in the article because it's driven directly from an experience I had where I had to renumber several journals classification systems and it took forever. So please, for the love of God, leave room in your numbering scheme uh, when, you, when you make these classifications. Uh, for example, I, I would recommend at least counting by tens, sort of. So you have your first classification at number 10, your second at 20, 30, 40 or even a hundred uh, and same for the subclassifications because as your journal grows, you're probably going to want to add more terms and you might find that if you're going alphabetically, maybe you want to add eight terms that all start with the letter M, which is really hard to predict what kind of terms you want to add. And if you only left yourself five spaces between your numbering values, then that's not going to work out and you're going to have to just completely redo it. So or call you and you'll redo it. <laughs> or that, or that, and then I'll force your name. <laughs> <laughs> we'll complain about you on a podcast years later. So. <laughs> 
Um, okay, now finally, no conversation about peer review systems would be complete without a long and detailed discussion of reporting. Um, so, so, no, I'm kidding. But tell me about the reports you, you've used uh, when trying to assess the health of, and, and, and I guess by the extension, uh, the trust you have in your reviewer pool. Yeah, we can try and make it uh, not so painful and, and, and tough. Um, but the review reports I use are usually for two things, uh, giving thank yous and rewards and reducing the number of reviewers in a journal's database. Because I think the inclination is to just add as many people as possible because you want as many options as possible with reviewers, but then it just be kind of becomes bloated and the editors spend hours and hours looking for people and combing through a database of thousands uh, and they need and it's just better to keep that a little bit tighter. Uh, so for reducing the number of reviewers in the database, I usually find the reviewer performance report is useful for zeroing in on who is is and isn't pulling their weight. It'll give you late reviewers, people who never agree to review in the first place, uh, folks that can usually have their permissions removed, um, and you can always add them back later if they, you know, get their act together. Uh, I will say it's important to kind of take that data with a grain of salt, though, depending on what time period you're looking at. Uh, if a person is chronically late, but they give good content, you might want to keep them. Or if a person has declined 10 times over five years, ultimately that's not that bad um, for them to only have declined that many times. If you want to get fancier with cleaning up the database, I usually will make some custom uh, reports in enterprise analytics reporting that'll drill down, which I'm not going to get into the nitty gritty to, although I could. <laughs> But just like as a quick example, I might make a report on who in the database doesn't have any personal classifications. And so they're really hard to match up with a paper. Um, and the editors aren't going to know how to use them anyway. So they're not really serving a useful purpose in your database. So what would you do uh, with that kind of person? I, I know um, uh, we ran a, a program uh, on a journal that I had uh, a while back where we like we tried to find those people. and just email them and be like, hey, add in some classifications for yourself so we can match you up with reviews. Is that something or would you just like cut those people out? Kind of depends. Uh, I've, I've definitely done the batch emails and asking reviewers to put in their classifications. You are not going to get 100% uptake from that. Um, you, you'll get some and that's important and reaching those people is good. So I probably would recommend at least sending one batch email attempt to try and get people to do that. Uh, but otherwise, Again, it depends on how engaged your reviewers are. Mm -hmm. I think it's pretty safe to just remove their permissions because you're not removing them entirely from the system. You're just removing their ability to review. And then if it's decided later that an editor wants to re-invite that person or um, the reviewer themselves contacts you and says, hey, I haven't gotten an invitation in a while, you can really easily just add that role back. So they're, they're not forgotten forever. <laughs> Gotcha. No, that makes sense. Um, so, so I, I wanted to ask you about that, that first point you made about, you know, reviewer thank yous and, and awards. Do you feel like there's a lot of value in giving reviewer awards? And, and I know you mentioned earlier, just some little thank yous are, are definitely, you know, well received. So I'm, I'm curious about your perspective on that. I mean, thank yous, definitely. Everyone likes to be thanked. Uh, it's just polite. They've done a service for your journal. And so you should thank them. I usually see journals published lists um, of all the reviewers. Sometimes the editor-in-chief will send a, a, an email to them or a more personalized email to maybe the top reviewers. As far as awards, I mean, it kind of depends on how you do them. If, are they just getting a, a certificate or an email? Are they getting some financial compensation? Um, 
I mean, overall, I think reviewers would probably prefer credit or cash or some other incentive than an award, but that's getting into a much deeper and more complicated topic. Yes, no, I would agree. And, and very much dependent on the culture of the society or the discipline or whatever. Um, yeah, just thinking about a, a journal I was working on, we, we did review our awards and at the annual meeting, we'd have like a reviewer reception and we'd give out the awards and they, all the reviewers would get to chat it up and have some free drinks and get to see who's the top reviewer of the year. <laughs> um, but, but yeah, I, I don't know how much they actually valued that, but some of them did definitely, but uh, most of them, I don't know. I mean, I would err on the side of doing something rather than nothing because I, we all know reviewers are strapped. They they do this for free for the most part. They're very busy. They have other responsibilities. And so giving them something at least shows that the journal cares about them. Uh, and maybe if you give the reviewer an award and the other journal they review for doesn't, maybe they're more inclined to review for your journal. So that's fair. That's fair. <laughs> The other um, tactic I, I've seen journals employ is sending like a note, uh, like on journal letterhead to that uh, person's boss and saying, this person gave us great reviews this year. Uh, have you ever done anything like that? I had a journal that tried that. Yeah, I think part of the, um, I think I stopped working on it before it really got off the ground. And I know we're having the discussions about should we just ask the reviewer for their boss's name? Like how many people are gonna give that? And the editor was pretty convinced that yes, reviewers would be over the moon with giving that information if we put in a good word for them uh, with their department chair. Uh, so I, I, I don't actually have any results on how that went, but I think it's an interesting concept. I thought so too. And it made a lot of sense to me. Um, again, probably dependent on, you know, discipline culture and stuff, but it, it makes some sense at least I, i'd be interested to find out how that one went um because I, I do think that's a practice that that people may not have thought of before because i certainly hadn't before it, it was brought to me yeah the novelty is really important right now because that's what's going to stick out to the reviewers mm. boss but then as soon as everyone starts doing it you're gonna have to think of something else <laughs> that's a good point <laughs> well that's all that we have here um and, and I, I definitely want to encourage everyone to go check out your article uh, at the Aries Systems blog. What Do you remember the name of the article? Building or Peer Review Week, Building Trust in Review with some thoughtful system configurations, I think. So to finish us off here, um, why don't you just tell us a little bit about uh, J&J Editorial's uh, partnership with Aries Systems? Sure. Uh, basically, we're working with Aries to provide more avenues for helping EM users get the most out of their system. Uh, JJ has always done independent consulting with societies, journals, variety of editorial offices on a variety of editorial office management topics. Uh, this is a support portion of which includes configuration auditing, workflow best practices, system admin training, stuff that we've, we've already kind of touched on. And again, since we work on both the editorial and system side of things, we can bridge that gap uh, between the software config and the practical application, make those best practice recommendations, speak from personal experience about, well, you can do the system configuration, but if I were in your journal admin shoes, I would not want to do it that way or do the follow-up or, or XYZ. Uh, and so while journals can still reach out to us in any time for this kind of service, we're also exploring how we can work alongside Aries directly to promote the system's capabilities and help clients maximize EM's functionality. Very nice. Well, I know I certainly, uh, you're my go-to person whenever I have a question of how to do something in an editorial manager. So um, I can now officially do that since that's like your job <laughs> in your job description. <laughs> 
uh, as opposed to me just bugging you when you're busy doing something else. So, uh, well, thank you, Emily, very much for your time and your thoughts. Uh, I thought this was great and um, want to wish you again a happy peer, rev- peer review week and a happy peer review week to everyone out there in peer review land. Thank you, Michael. It's been uh, a laugh riot. <laughs> Indeed it has. <laughs> All right. Well, thanks so much. To find out more about peer review systems or if you need help running your own, drop us a line at jjeditorial.com contact. Or you can always email me directly at michael at jjeditorial.com. That's M-I-C-H-A-E-L at jjeditorial.com. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter at JJ Editorial or on LinkedIn and Facebook, where we post news and content daily. Thanks for listening and happy peer review week. We'll see you next time.